Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith, and in today's episode, I'm joined in the Penguin studio by a best-selling author whose debut thriller, My Husband's Wife, became an international hit. She's here to talk about her new novel, Blood Sisters. She's Jane Corrie. Jane, welcome. Thank you very much. And Jane has brought along a number of objects that have influenced her writing, and I'm looking forward to hearing the stories behind her selection. Jane, Blood Sisters tells the story of Alison, an art teacher who is haunted by a dark secret and a terrible accident from her past. This is your second thriller. What drew you to the, the genre? Well, to be honest, I never saw myself as a thriller writer, and I think for years I'd been trying out different kinds of voices. But when my first marriage ended, I took a job as writer-in-residence of a high-security male prison. Now, this wasn't something I'd planned to do. Until then, I'd been a full-time magazine journalist. And in fact, when I did get it, I was quite shocked. But I thought I ought to do it, so I went along. And from day one, I was sucked into it in a way that I never expected. I met people who didn't look like the kind of criminal I had in my head. They looked like your next-door neighbour, they looked like a husband, a son. And the reason I'd been put there in the first place was that I'd been employed to help people write because it allows them to express their feelings on paper, to accept what they have done in the past and hopefully make a better life. And also it can improve their self-esteem all of which I thought, I have to say, sounded slightly namby-pamby until I started doing it. And then I discovered it was right. So when I entered some of my men's work for competitions and they won, as they did in many cases, their behaviour immediately improved. And just as they were hopefully being given the opportunity to write, which they might not have had in the past, so was I being given the opportunity to observe a dark, dark world that I had never thought of venturing into before, which was how my husband's wife was born. So then for my second book, I knew I wanted to explore the theme of sisters because it is a very big relationship theme. I have a younger sister and I love her dearly. I do think that sisters have that special bond, that very tight closeness and also when you have fallouts and then when you make up again because a sister is for life. Yeah. I can't imagine life without my sister. She means a great deal to me. And I also wanted to explore prison again. Now, when I took up this residency in prison, I was actually in two types of prisons. I was in an open prison in the morning and a cat B in the afternoon. A cat B is a category for men that pose a significant risk to society. So double A is very bad. A is bad. B is not good. C is getting there and D is the final category um, before men are released into society or if they've committed a crime where they're not considered to be a severe risk to society. So I had um, in the open prison men who had been in the system for 40 odd years so one could only hazard a guess at what they had done and I also might have had somebody who'd gone in for six weeks. So I wanted to set blood sisters in an open prison mainly because people don't expect bad things to happen in open prisons. But when I was working there in the mornings, I often found that actually things were tougher than you would expect. 
Well, you've piqued all of our interest there. Let's hear from the audio book of Blood Sisters. We're going to hear the opening of the novel read by Amelia Fox, who is the voice of Alison in this extract. I read the poster. It's on A4 paper and has a picture of an artist's palette next to a cell with bars across it. Wanted. Artist-in-residence for HMP Archville, a men's open prison, one hour from central London, three days a week, travel expenses paid, competitive remuneration. Applications to archville at hmps.gsi.gov.uk My skin breaks out into little goosebumps. A scream. Silence. Blood. You wouldn't catch me in one of those places sniffs the receptionist. Her words bring me back to myself and I fumble for a pen. You're not really interested, are you, Alison? I continue writing down the email address. Maybe. Rather you than me. The pros and cons whirl round in my head as I make my way out into the street. Steady income, travel costs enough to stop me worrying over my bank balance every month. But I've never been inside a prison before. The very thought terrifies me. My mouth is dry. My heart is thumping. I wish I'd never seen the ad. It's as though fate is telling me something. But do I really want to listen? I pass a park with teenagers smoking on the swings... One is laughing, head tossed back, a happy, carefree laugh, just like my sister's. For her, life was a ball. Me? I was the serious one. Earnest. Even before the accident, I remember a certain mysterious heaviness in my chest. I always wanted to make things right, to do the best I could in life. The word conscientious featured on every one of my school reports. But there are some things you can't make right. It wasn't your fault, my mother had said time and time again. Yet when I replay it in my mind, I keep thinking of things I could have done. And now it's too late. That was an extract from the audiobook of Blood Sisters, and it leads us on nicely to your first object, which is a cartoon of yourself in conversation with a prisoner. It's got a, a nice blue frame on it. And uh, quite a, a swarthy gentleman with uh, an unusual haircut, sat across from yourself with a pile of papers in the middle and the bars in the middle of the picture just reminding us that we're in a prison. Um, why did you choose this object and, and what does it tell us about you? Well, the cartoon was done by a magazine that interviewed me on my work in the prison. And I look very naive and I'm leaning towards this huge man. And I suppose in a way, I was very naive when I started. I had no idea what, what I was going to be doing, how I was going to do it. I was very scared because I found out soon after I arrived that I wasn't going to have an officer with me when I ran workshops, when I spoke to men. And quite often the nearest help was 
some way down the corridor and a very lengthy corridor towards the officer's mess. So I literally had the keys of the prison around my waist with a whistle. And that can be quite daunting if you stop to think about it when you're doing a one-to-one. And I did quite a lot of one-to-ones in manuscript appraisals because I had a lot of men who wanted to write quite lengthy pieces and I would help them write their novels or short stories or poems or sometimes letters home. But that man in the cartoon, and I have this in my study, there there is also a matching cartoon that goes with it with um, a prisoner sitting up next to a desk and he's signing books, which he has written himself. Um, They mean an enormous amount to me because they remind me not of my prejudices, but of the things that I thought about prison before I went in. And that huge man with the very beefy arms and the rather scary-looking face is what I thought I would find. Mm. And there were men like that. And in fact, the men that I helped were incredibly considerate and very nice. They would hold the doors open for me. They would go and usher in their friends to come to my workshops. There were many times during my working day when I'd completely forget I was in prison. Your experiences mirror the ones that Alison has in the book where Mm. she goes in as an art teacher rather than a writer, in Mm. in your case, um, and she goes in with the idea that it might be a bit airy-fairy to to try and transform people's lives through art who have already committed such grievous crimes, but... Mm. It strikes me that that argument is something that's there. You know, you hear of people saying that prisoners should be deprived of books Mm. and Mm. what rights should they have. But um, obviously there's a a rehabilitation process that goes on as well, which is very important for society as a whole. And is that the kind of transformation that you went through to really feel like art and writing can help people in prison? Yes, it is. It is. And in fact, I was told before I went in, that statistically it's proved that if you can improve somebody's self-esteem, they're less likely to re-offend because many men wrote about being abused as children and about terrible things that had happened to them. And I think that you've also always got to remember that these people have destroyed other people's families. And that was something I had to remind myself again and again. As a person, I wanted to make everything right and it's not always possible. But... Art and writing can help release anger and they can help release emotions. And by writing something down, you can, as I said earlier, think about what you've done in the past and what you might go on to do. And I can't tell you the number of men who'd come up and say, you know, Jane, if I hadn't written something down, I'd have been bashing my head or somebody else's against a wall. Well, um, let's hear another extract from the book. We've already met Alison in a clip from Blood Sisters, and now we're going to meet Kitty, who has been in a care home since the accident. This is read by Zoe Thorne. Knit one, pearl one, sang O.T. Knit one, pearl one. Kitty wanted to throttle her. Knit? Pearl? Who was she kidding? Their stitches, O.T.'s included, were sliding all over the place twisted up in woollen knots, off the needles entirely. Or even lying on the ground in a pool of urine, courtesy of Dawn in the room next door, who had been incontinent and never the same in the head since her pushchair had collided with a lorry some thirty years earlier. Ironic, since her mother had only just succeeded in potty training her at the time. Kitty knew the details because she'd overheard Dawn's mother telling the staff. She did so every time she visited. One afternoon a year, two o'clock, Christmas Eve, on the dot, 
No one knew what Dawn's mother did during the rest of the year, but sure as hell it wasn't looking after her daughter. Knit one, pearl one. Oti's chant was getting louder as if volume might make up for the piss-soaked slipped stitches and sheer inadequacy. You're going too fast, Kitty wanted to scream. My good hand can't keep up. Sometimes the other hand thought it could work too, but it never did. This was upsetting if she wanted to do something, but not if she didn't, like now. Occupational therapy, or OT as the teacher gaily called it, was so boring. It wasn't just the knitting, it was the tying of the shoelaces. Left over right and right over left, or was it the other way round? So fucking hard to remember. Kitty was pretty sure that she used to be able to do her shoelaces herself. But when she tried to pin down her memory, it kept breaking up into tiny bits, like specks of coloured dust in the sunlight. Memory can be affected when the frontal lobes are damaged. That's what she'd overheard a doctor saying to Friday, Mum. So she may not have any long-term memories. Friday Mum had looked sadder than the other mum on Kitty's wooden picture board. The one the staff had given her to point at the drawings with her good hands so she could communicate. Ha! <laughs> More like guess what she was trying to say. They were always getting it wrong. Education classes were meant to help. She was pretending to learn her alphabet again, although she already knew it. In fact, it was good fun to give the letters new meanings. M was for the memory she bloody well gone and lost. Look in the wardrobe, Kitty sometimes joked. Maybe it's there. But no one laughed because they couldn't understand her. A was for the accident she'd had. What kind of accident, she would ask the staff over and over again. But no one ever told her. Poor Kitty, they would say. All she can do is babble. If only they knew what was going on in her head. That was another extract from Blood Sisters. Were you involved in the audiobook in any way? Um, obviously, you've got a star-studded cast there with Amelia Fox and Zoe Thorne. And how do you feel when you hear the audiobooks of your work? Incredible. They sent me a list of actresses that they were considering and I said, I would love to have Amelia Fox and Zoe Thorne. They'd be my ideal duo. So I couldn't believe it when they got both of them. Just wonderful. It's like winning a very big raffle. And so then they said, would you like to go and, and hear Amelia Fox? And I said, I'd love to. So I went <laughs> up and she was just lovely and we got on very well. And she was interested about the prison. So we chatted about that for a while. And it was incredible hearing her read my book. It's always very strange when you hear somebody else reading your words. Because as a writer, you're sitting there at your desk in your own world... You create your story, the words come out. So um, it reminds me of the things that inspired me to write part yeah. of those sentences. Well, we should have a look at one of the other objects that you've brought in. Um, family being at the heart of Blood Sisters, mm. your next object links to this. It's a, a photograph of your grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, mm. It's in a, a lovely golden frame and she looks very elegant with uh, the waves in her hair. She looks like the very uh, elegant woman. Yes, yes. I never knew her. She was called Betty, Betty Roma. Before the First World War ended, 
she would, like many young women of her age, go and visit wounded men. And she went to visit one particular soldier called Douglas. And it so happened that he had a visitor that day, very good-looking man who'd been a rubber planter in Borneo, came back to fight in the war, his brother was injured, went to visit him and met his future wife. So those were my grandparents. And she was about 21 at the time. He whisked her off to Borneo, which must have been quite a big deal in 1919, where she had four children and my mother was number three. And then the rubber business went bust and they came back to England just before the Second World War broke out. People tend to think of death during war years as being attributable to bombs. Our grandmother actually died of a brain tumour when she was just 41. The children were very young. My mother was nine. She was, by all accounts, a very stylish, very beautiful, very warm, loving mother. And after she died, my mother and her brothers were all brought up by separate people. Astoundingly, they all kept in touch and in fact their children, my cousins, um, were all very close. But she is a strong figure for me and I've always felt that I have known her even though she died so many years before I was born. And sometimes, I know this may sound a little silly, sometimes when I'm faced with something difficult to do, I think how strong she had to be. It was not easy in Borneo for her in all kinds of different ways and I think she did this, and so I can too. I think of her facing the war. I think of her facing the fact that she had cancer and bombs were falling and she had four children to look after and what was going to happen. Yeah. Her life sounds like a novel as well. So mm. um, do you think that's had an influence on you, having these strong women and these stories in your family um, yes. in terms of, of your writing? Yes, I think in our family we are strong. My mother used to say... I was quietly determined. Our, our mother died young too in her 50s and she was strong. Let's talk about the strong females in the book. Mm. Um, we've already touched on the idea of that you wanted to write about sisters, mm. but the relationship between some of the women in the book is very complicated. What inspired you to, in, in terms of the relationships within this book between the female characters? Well, I do have a good relationship with my sister, but also, there are times, and I'm sure she won't mind me saying this, when we've had our arguments, because all sisters do. And of course, you sometimes hurt the people you love most because they are close to you. I wanted to look at how two very close fictional characters could both love and hate each other at times, and the little things, little niggly things that one sister could do to another. So what I really wanted to look at was this intense relationship between sisters. Well, let's hear another extract from the audiobook of Blood Sisters. This extract is read by Amelia Fox. What do you wear on your first day to prison? Jeans? Too casual. Black trousers? Seems safe. White T-shirt? I slip on the top. You can just about see the outline of my bra through the fabric. This wouldn't have worried me before, but now I'm nervous. As Mum had warned me on the phone last night, I need to remember that I'm going into a prison where men have been deprived of physical relations for some time. Please be careful, won't you, darling? Black jumper, then. 
too funereal with the trousers? Maybe cream instead. A proper linen handkerchief. As an artist, you never know when you might need one. And, of course, my locket, complete with safety chain. That's mine, says my sister's voice in my head. I glance at the mirror. A nervous me glances back. It reminds me of the teenager I used to be. Yet my facial features bear little similarity. I no longer wear glasses. I've got used to my contact lenses now. My hair is fashionably spiky instead of the curtain which I used to tuck behind my ear. The nose, of course, is changed. And I've learned to wear makeup properly thanks to a free lesson in a department store where I felt horribly exposed and rather stupid. Yet the results were worth it. Incredible! the girl had said, as though she had just performed a miracle. Right now, though, my hand shakes as I apply my coal pencil. Blast! It slips through my fingers. I wipe the smudge off the carpet before applying a touch of lip gloss. No point in making myself stand out. But at the same time, I need strength. Self-belief. Dab of lavender behind my ear. Mum gives me a bottle every Christmas. She wore it, and so did my grandmother, whom I never knew before her. It's a smell that takes me back to a holiday in Norfolk when Dad was still alive. Before the leukaemia got him. I was only three. My memories are scant, but odd ones stand out like a big warm hand holding mine and his voice urging me to look at the rows of pretty purple-headed flowers in the fields before us. Your next object is from your study. Mm. It's a sign that says, by the sea, all worries wash away. Um, <laughs> could you describe your love of the sea? I guess that's what this object is all oh, about. Oh, it is. It, it definitely is. I grew up in a suburb of Harrow, and for the first 50 years of my life, lived within an hour of a tube station. But I'd always been drawn to the sea, and my mother's best friend, who was our godmother, had a cottage on the Isle of Wight in a place called Bonchurch, just above the landslip. So below it were the cliffs dropping down to the sea, and above it were the downs. And my sister and I loved it. We used to go every year, and I would live for it. And um, in my day, you had those little lift-up desk lids where you put postcards, and mine would be full of ponies and the sea and the Isle of Wight. And on my father's side, his father, who had also died before I was born, was a sailor. And I do think that the sea can be in your blood. There's just something that's always pulled me towards it. And one of my favourite poets at the time was John Macefield. And in fact, now on our kitchen wall, we have um, part of his poem, I Must Down to the Sea Again. I would dearly have loved to have brought that, but it would have meant dismantling the beam <laughs> that hangs in the kitchen. We don't want that to happen. A little bit tricky. So when I got married again, we decided to live somewhere where neither of us had lived before. And he suggested a particular seaside town. In fact, I didn't even know it was a seaside town. When he said it was by the sea... I virtually said done because I always wanted to live by the sea and I just love it. I'm 
run in the morning when I get up. I run the dog along the front and I'm down there at lunchtime, usually sitting on a rock, uh, walking along the beach and quite often in the evening. And I've become, much to my surprise and definitely to most of my friends and family's surprise, one of those crazy most-of-the-year-round swimmers. <laughs> but it is true that your worries go away by the sea because there's something about that rhythmic flow of the waves as they go in and out. And you think life is like that. Life goes in and out with its good and its bad and its tragic and its wonderful, but it's consistent. And when I find things, if I find things hard in life, I put my head by the sea. Talking of life changes, how was the transition from going from <laughs> full-time journalist to full-time, pretty much full-time novelist? Mm. Well, there were bits in between. So basically, I trained as a journalist straight after university. I always knew I wanted to write a novel. I went to a very academic school in London where I was not particularly academic. The only thing I could do was English. So I felt very stupid for most of my time there because I thought everyone could write stories. I didn't see it as a particular thing that, that only some people could do. So I always knew I wanted to write a novel, but I became a journalist because I felt that was the best way to earn a living writing. And I became a magazine journalist. And I turned freelance when my eldest was born, but I was very lucky in that I got lots of columns from um, quite well-known magazines. And I also freelanced for The Times and Telegraph. So I was more or less a full-time freelance journalist for many years. And then, ironically, as these things happen, the month that my very long marriage broke up, the column that I'd been writing for a prestigious weekly magazine ended because the editor left. So um, I took the job at the prison, but I also applied to Oxford University where I taught on a course that they run for people who just want to learn how to write. So they weren't undergraduates. But I then also taught on the creative writing diploma course for undergraduates. And sometimes I'd go straight from the prison to Oxford University. And I can honestly say that at times the standard of writing at both were as, as high as the other. And then it was a kind of gradual transition, really, to being a full-time novelist. And I had to learn to write in a different way because as a journalist, you get the story out in a short time. You learn to describe your characters very quickly, what I call sort of thumbnail sketches. A lot of my features were what we call tots, triumphs over tragedies, ordinary people who'd done extraordinary things. So I had to learn to write in a different way with novels, to expand that, to, to fill in the narrative, as it were, and to, to work a different structure that journalist side of you never quite leaves you. So I um, I do do the odd bit still. Yeah. yeah, it feels like there's there's a lot of research that's gone into this book as well, which perhaps taps into those journalistic uh, there was. things. There, there was a lot of research with Kitty. So I went to three centres. One was a social centre where people didn't live, but they went, um, people with special needs went and they made friends and they played games with the staff and they socialised. Another was a residential centre where people had had terrible accidents or strokes and you saw young men sitting in chairs who couldn't talk or walk and you knew that they'd been playing music a few years earlier, maybe been in a band, you know, they'd had normal lives and then one day they step in front of a car or they're on a motorbike 
And I, I did come back and cry after, after some of these visits. But I learned, as I did in prison, that there is humour in the darkest of places that you wouldn't expect. Going on from your journalistic practices, uh, in, now that you are writing novels, do you have a particular routine that you that mm. you go in for? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I've always been one of those need-to-write-in-the-morning people. Ideally, I like to get up. I run along the front, as I said. I'll have breakfast with my husband. And then I will go up into my study, which is right at the top of the house, overlooks the sea. And I really can't bear being disturbed. I'm I don't like to think of myself as being a snappy person, but sometimes if somebody <laughs> puts their head around the door, I'll say, I'm writing, please go away. And uh, my husband is very good at that. Let's hear one final extract from the audio book of Blood Sisters. In this clip, Alison is about to start teaching one of her art classes at the prison. I unlock the art cupboard to get scissors and paper, which I will cut into squares. Then I freeze. On the top of the pile is a roughly torn-out cutting from the prison newsletter. It shows a photograph in the Welcome to New Staff page. My photograph. In the middle of my face is a red drawing pin. Below, in childish-looking black felt-tip writing, are scrawled five words. I'm going to get you. Frantically, I rip up the cutting into tiny bits, pricking myself on the drawing pin. Only then does it occur to me that I should have kept it intact. But a small part of me knows I would never show it to anyone. And what does a note prove anyway? There's no indication of the writer's identity. If I made a fuss, word would get round the prison and I could be more vulnerable than before can't think straight. Instead, I concentrate on cutting out my squares and then putting the scissors safely back. Block it out, I tell myself firmly. It didn't happen. I have six students today, including Barry and a cocky youth. When I explain they are going to start off by sketching each other, the latter rolls his eyes. Pace a piss. I'm constantly surprised by how childish some of these prisoners are. Was it that immaturity that got them into trouble in the first place? There are times when I feel like throwing all this in to concentrate on my local authority classes and my lovely students like Beryl. She wouldn't put a drawing pin through my face. There are so many twists and turns throughout Blood Sisters. How do you approach your plots? Is it all mapped out before you start? Uh, no, it's not. I start with an idea. It, it's like a tiny little star of an idea, a kind of nucleus floating around. And then I'll people it. I'll work out what kind of people would work with that idea. And it's very important to me to make sure that each character is different not just in terms of name or what they look like or what they do, but personality. And I love twists. I love turns. And I just love trying to send people down one path and then actually saying, no, it's not that way, it's the other. So I tend to map out very loosely. And I will, before I start it, have made notes 
But I don't sit down and say, right, I'm going to be writing this book, so these are the notes I'm going to make. These notes will come to me when I'm doing something completely different. So I might be swimming in the sea, which is actually highly inconvenient because it's not easy to get out <laughs> and write down those notes. Uh, it might be, and many writers find this, um, when you go to bed. And then there's the download at about 4.30am or 5am where you'll wake up with a start with something for your book, which you think at the time is brilliant. It's not always that brilliant when you look at your notes at 8am or 7am in the morning afterwards. But you just have this earth-shattering moment. And it is like a download. It's as though somebody has put it in your head. And you think, that's what I'll do to her or him. So I always have something next to my side of the bed to write down. So it's this rather multi-layered pastry, as it were. And I don't know which layers I'm going to put in. But I love that excitement where even if you've got the plot mapped out, something can suddenly hit you and you think, no, that's what they do instead. It's time to move on to the next object. That was a very interesting way of, of putting it. Um, this is your wedding ring. Could you give us give us a look at your sparkler? Yeah, my, my wedding rings. <laughs> yes, my wedding rings. After my marriage ended, I was on my own for three years and then I married Sean. And you know, it's a very big thing to get married again when you've been married to somebody for such a long time. But actually, we complement each other. He's very good at giving me space to write. Do you think, it's a, as somebody who's a musician, people often say, you know, you, are musicians or artists difficult to live with? <laughs> and I will, I will ask the same question of you. Are, are writers difficult to live with? <laughs> I do. I do think they're difficult to live with. And I think it takes a certain person to understand that. And I'm very grateful that my husband does understand that. Well, it's time for the final object, which isn't an object. It's your granddaughter. It is, yes, <laughs> she is. So, Jen, can we talk about your granddaughter and how she inspires you? My daughter and her husband were working away when they told me that actually they thought they might come and make their home in Devon, near us. And I thought that was wonderful because when my daughter was growing up, I'd always said to her, when you're a big girl, make sure you live near mummy because it's so much easier. As I said, my mother had died young when my daughter was only a year. So I very much mi well, desperately missed her. Um, my sister and I both missed her to this day, but would have been so amazing to have had her seeing the children growing up. So when they moved to Devon, it was understood, I made it very clear that I would be there if and when they had children. And this happened. My granddaughter is, is now 16 months old. And I can't describe the love that you feel for a grandchild. It's completely bowled me over. I was there within an hour of her birth. And I've seen her virtually every day since then. I look after her now two days a week. But she is so funny and so bright and so wonderful and such a breath of fresh air. And she loves books. She had a book put in her hands before she was a week old. And now when I go over in the morning, the first thing she'll do is put a book in my hands and we'll go and plonk ourselves down on, on the um, step by the back window and we'll read. Yeah. And she's wonderful. That's amazing. Yes, I'm sure she'll she'll enjoy lots of your stories as so. as she grows up. As you, you tell her tell her some oh, tall tales. We do already as I'm pushing her along in the pram in the Excellent. morning. First thing we do in the morning after breakfast is we go down to the sea, and we tell stories. Excellent.
you mentioned that you were midway through another mm. another book. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about this book, please. Okay. Whatever you can, of course, without okay. revealing too okay. much. Okay. So it's called The Dead X. And I don't want to give away too much of it. There is a prison and there are two very strong women and lots of twists and turns. Excellent. I I won't go any further than that. Thank you very much, Jane. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. um, You can follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and join us on Facebook to see pictures of all the objects we've chatted about today and to see who else will be joining me in the Penguin studio soon. Out now from Penguin Random House Audio, one of the most extraordinary, controversial and explosive debuts of 2017. Annie's mother is a serial killer. The only way she can make it stop is to hand her into the police. But out of sight is not out of mind. As her mother's trial looms, the secrets of her past won't let Annie sleep, even with a new foster family and name, Millie. A fresh start. Now surely she can be whoever she wants to be. But Millie's mother is a serial killer, and blood is thicker than water. Forgive me when I tell you it was me. It was me that told. The detective, a kindly man, belly full and round. Disbelief at first. Then the stained dungarees I pulled from my bag. Tiny. The teddy bear on the front peppered red with blood. I could have brought more. So many to choose from. She never knew I kept them. Shifted in his chair, he did. Sat up straight, him in his gut. His hand. I noticed a slight tremor as it reached for the telephone. Come now, he said. You need to hear this. The silent waiting for his superior to arrive. Bearable for me. Less so for him. A hundred questions beat a drum in his head. Is she telling the truth? Can't be. That many. Dead. Surely not. I told the story again. And again. Same story. Different faces watched. Different ears listened. I told them everything. Well... Almost everything. The video recorder on. A gentle whirring, the only noise in the room once I finished my statement. You might have to go to court. You know that, right? You're the only witness, one of the detectives said. Another asked, do you think it's safe for us to send her home? If what she's saying is true. The chief inspector in charge replied, We'll have a team assembled in a matter of hours. Then turned to me and said, Nothing's going to happen to you. It already has, I wanted to reply. Translated into over 20 languages, Good Me, Bad Me is a tour de force. In its narrator, Millie Barnes, we have a voice to be reckoned with. And in its author, Ali Land, an extraordinary new talent. Available now to download and own from Audible and iTunes. <laughs>